Section 1E, Vietnam, Desert Storm and Operations, 1992 through 2014. Vietnam, 1961 through 1973. After eight years, during which the Air Force worked to build America's strategic nuclear forces, President Kennedy's administration faced national wars of liberation, backed by the Soviet Union. Responding to communist efforts and layoffs in South Vietnam, President Kennedy in April 1961 ordered Operation Farmgate, the covert deployment of the 44th Hundred Combat Crew Training Squadron, Jungle Jim, to train the South Vietnamese Air Force. Flying North American T-28 Trojans, Douglas A-26 Invaders, and Douglas A-1E Sky Raiders, American pilots launched attack missions under the umbrella of combat training. Following the August 1964 Gulf of Tonkin incident, when North Vietnamese torpedo boats attacked the USS Maddox, President Lyndon B. Johnson lifted the shroud of secrecy and ordered an orchestrated air attack as a show of force. By December 1964, North American F-100 Super Sabres, McDonnell RF-101 Voodoos, and Republic F-105 Thunder Chiefs, with Boeing KC-135 Stratotanker support, conducted Operation Barrel Roll attacking communist forces in Laos. Faced with a deteriorating political and military situation in South Vietnam, President Johnson ordered Operation Rolling Thunder, a sign of American support to South Vietnam and the signal of United States resolve. Beginning on 2 March 1965, Rolling Thunder was a program of measured and limited air action against selected military targets in North Vietnam remaining south of the 19th parallel. Closely named by the White House, Rolling Thunder sought to apply incrementally announced military power to undermine the North Vietnamese will to wage war. However, the United States underestimated the enemy's resiliency and determination. Air Force leaders chafed at rules of engagement that negated the speed, surprise, and flexibility of massed air power. They believed periodic bombing pauses intended to signal American intentions allowed the enemy to recover. In 1965, North Vietnamese air defenses multiplied, including Soviet-made SA-2 surface-to-air missiles. Hanoi established an advanced radar-controlled air defense system that combined surface-to-air missiles, anti-aircraft artillery, and Soviet-produced MiG-17 and MiG-21 interceptors. Consequently, the United States losses mounted without any visible effect from the air campaign. By the fall of 1968, Air Force tactical aircraft had flown 166,000 sorties over North Vietnam, and the Navy attack aircraft added 144,500. In the process, the enemy downed 526 Air Force aircraft. Surface-to-air missiles accounted for 54, MiGs destroyed 42, and anti-aircraft artillery claimed the remainder. Personnel losses were equally heavy. Of the 745 Air Force crew members shot down over North Vietnam, 145 were rescued, 255 were confirmed killed, 222 were captured, and 123 were classified missing in action. Air Force leaders found these results intolerable for an air campaign with virtually complete air superiority. Complementing operations over North Vietnam, the air war over South Vietnam demonstrated the full spectrum of air power. Air Force aircraft and helicopters provided close air support, interdiction, reconnaissance, airlift, tanker support, and search and rescue capabilities. Air Force resources ranged from one-man Cessna 01 bird dogs, used by forward air controllers to mark enemy targets for strikers, to mammoth B-52Ds modified to drop as many as 27 750-pound bombs and 84 500-pound bombs for Operation Arc Light interdiction missions. 
Vintage World War II aircraft like AC-47, Puff the Magic Dragon gunships, join the state-of-the-art platforms like the General Dynamics Swing Wing. Advanced Terrain Following Radar F-111 Aardvark The January 1968 siege of Ki San displayed the potential of Air Force close air support. When more than 20,000 North Vietnamese troops, protected by hilly, covered terrain, surrounded 6,000 United States Marines, General William Meyer applied massive firepower during Operation Niagara. A flight of three B-52s hit the enemy every 90 minutes for most of the 77-day siege. To prevent the enemy from overrunning the base, American aircraft dropped 100,000 tons of bombs, two-thirds of those from B-52s. Following the 1968 bombing halt, President Richard M. Nixon initiated a phased withdrawal from the frustrating conflict. From 536,000 United States troops in 1968, American personnel numbered fewer than 100,000 by 1972. When the North Vietnamese launched the Easter Offensive in spring 1972, Nixon resolved to achieve peace with honor. Reinforcing ground troops was practically impossible, so Nixon employed Operation Linebacker to blunt the communist attack. Unlike Rolling Thunder, military leaders were allowed to use appropriate strategy and tactics, in part because the administration significantly reduced restrictions. With the acquisition of precision-guided munitions, new television and laser-guided smart bombs dramatically increased strike accuracy. On 13 May 1972, 16 McDonnell Douglas F-4 Phantoms hit the Than Hoa Bridge with 24 smart bombs, destroying a target that had eluded American airmen for years. From April to October 1972, Air Force and Navy aircraft dropped 155,548 tons of bombs on North Vietnamese troops. The era's first war aces earned their marks during linebacker as well. On 28 August 1972, Captain Steve Ritchie shot down his 5th MiG-21. Within weeks, two F-4 weapon systems officers joined the fraternity of aces, Captain Charles de Bellevue with six kills and Captain Jeffrey Feinstein with five. When North Vietnamese negotiators accepted specific peace conditions, President Nixon terminated the air campaign. In December 1972, North Vietnamese intransigence over the final peace agreement prompted President Nixon to initiate Linebacker II, an intense 11-day air campaign to pressure enemy compliance. From 18 to 29 December, American aircraft pounded military and industrial targets in North Vietnam. For the first time, the White House authorized B-52 strikes near Hanoi. In less than two weeks, 729 B-52 sorties dropped 15,000 tons of bombs and fighter bombers added another 5,000 tons. Despite the loss of 26 aircraft, including 15 B-52s, air power broke the impasse. Peace talks resumed 8 January 1973, and a comprehensive ceasefire was signed 23 January. During Vietnam, air power demonstrated its versatility and wide-ranging impact, as well as its limitations. Despite an impressive military showing, the United States did not win decisively in Vietnam. Although the Air Force flew more than 5 million sorties and dropped 6 million tons of bombs, North Vietnamese forces eventually conquered South Vietnam in April 1975. Air power did not prevent the collapse of the South Vietnamese government or the change in American political climate. The Vietnam War saw a number of notable and heroic achievements by Air Force enlisted members, including two winners of the Medal of Honor, who will be discussed in detail in a later section of this chapter. While not a Medal of Honor recipient, Dwayne Hackney became one of the most honored heroes of the Vietnam War. The recipient of 28 decorations for valor in combat, more than 70 awards and decorations in all, and winner of the Cheney Award for 1967, an honor presented for valor or self-sacrifice in a humanitarian effort. 
Hackney enlisted in the Air Force a few days after graduation, volunteering for pararescue training. An honor graduate in every phase of the tough year-long course, he had his choice of assignments. Airman 2nd Class Hackney turned down assignments in Bermuda and England for Detachment 7, 38th Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Squadron at Da Nang. Hackney flew more than 200 combat missions in three and a half years of Vietnam duty, all as a volunteer. He earned four distinguished flying crosses for specific acts of heroism and 18 air medals, many for single acts of valor. He also received the Air Force Cross, the Silver Star, the Airman's Medal, the Purple Heart, and several foreign decorations. Hackney's most celebrated mission was on 6 February 1967. That morning, he descended from a HH-3E Jolly Green Giant to look for a downed pilot near Mujia Pass. The pilot has stopped his radio transmissions, a clue that enemy troops were nearby. For two hours, Hackney searched for the man, dodging enemy patrols, until the mission was called off because of weather. Late that afternoon, the downed pilot came back on the air, and Hackney's crew headed for the rescue area to get him out before dark. This time Hackney found his man, badly injured but alive, got him onto the forest penetrator, and started up to the chopper, drawing small arms fire all the way. As the men were hauled aboard, the helicopter took a direct hit from a 37mm anti-aircraft gun and burst into flame. Wounded by shell fragments and suffering third-degree burns, Hackney, knowing that the HH-3 was not going to make it, put his own parachute on the rescued pilot and got him out of the doomed chopper. Groping through the dense smoke, he found an oil-soaked chute and slipped it on. Before he could buckle the chute, a second 37mm shell hit the HH-3, blowing him out the door. He did not remember pulling the ripcord of the unbuckled chute before hitting trees 250 feet below him, then plunging 80 feet to a rock ledge in a crevice. When he regained consciousness, enemy troops were leaping back up the chopper. There were no other survivors from the rescue helicopter. For that mission, Hackney received the Air Force Cross. In 1973, Hackney left the Air Force, one of the most decorated pararescue men of the Vietnam War. Four years later, missing the camaraderie of Air Force life, he enlisted again returning to duty as a pararescue instructor. In 1981, he suffered a severe heart attack, the result of a rescue operation, and was permanently grounded. Altogether, he served in the United States Air Force from 1965 to 1991, retiring as a Chief Master Sergeant. In December 1972, B-52 tail gunner Staff Sergeant Samuel Turner shot down an enemy MiG, the first of only two confirmed shutdowns by enlisted airmen during the war. Both victories from gunners belonging to the 307th Strategic Wing at Utapao, Thailand, credit for the 5th overall MiG-21 kill during Linebacker 2 also went to an enlisted airman. Airman First Class Albert E. Moore, Chief Master Sergeant Wayne Fisk, was directly involved in the famed Sante Prisoner War Camp raid and the rescue of the crew of the USS Mayaquez. When the USS Mayaquez was hijacked by Cambodian Communist forces in May 1975, Fisk was a member of the assault force that successfully recovered the ship, the crew, and the entrapped United States Marines. For his actions, Fisk was presented with his second Silver Star. Concluding the Mayaquez mission, he was recognized as the last American serviceman to engage communist forces in ground combat in Southeast Asia. In 1979, he was the first Air Force enlisted recipient of the United States JC's 10 Outstanding Young Men of America. In 1986, Fisk became the first director of the Air Force Enlisted Heritage Hall on Maxwell Air Force Base Gunter Annex, the post-Vietnam era and the end of the Cold War, rebuilding the conventional Air Force after Vietnam began with personnel changes. 
The Vietnam era Air Force included many members who had entered its ranks in World War II. President Nixon ended the draft in 1973 in favor of an all-volunteer American military. The Air Force attracted recruits as best it could but encountered problems with the racial friction and alcohol and drug abuse that reflected American social problems. Enough Vietnam career veterans remain, however, to direct the new service and implement changes. One of the most notable of those changes was more realistic and more dangerous combat training. In combat simulations, Air Force pilots flew as aggressors employing enemy tactics. By 1975, training had evolved into red flag at the United States Air Force Weapons and Tactics Center, Nellis Air Force Base, Nevada. Red flag air crews flew both individual sorties and formations in realistic situations to gain application experience before actual combat. Colonel Richard Moody Sutter is the founder of Red Flag. As a major working in the Pentagon in 1975, he saw his vision to fruition. Red Flag revolutionized Air Force training. According to senior leaders at the time, Colonel Sutter's efforts resulted in a program that made the United States Air Force the premier air arm of the world. An innovative genius, Sutter flew more than 200 combat missions in Vietnam and was the first F-15 Eagle Squadron commander. In addition to Red Flag, he is credited with founding the Air Force Aggressor Squadron and the Enzidlerhof Air Station Germany Warrior Preparation Center used to train senior battle commanders in the art of war. Sutter was the driving force behind Checkmate, the Air Force think tank for wartime scenarios. After his death in January 1996, the Warrior Preparation Center Command Section Building and Red Flag Building, Nellis Air Force Base, Nevada, were named in his honor. Post-Vietnam rebuilding, including applying technology improvements. The battle for control of the skies over North Vietnam emphasized the need for a highly maneuverable dogfighting aircraft, armed with missiles and cannons. The F-15 Eagle and F-16 Fighting Falcon filled this need. The danger posed by radar-guided anti-aircraft artillery and surface-to-air missiles in Vietnam drove the Air Force to develop stealth technology. Special paints, materials, and designs to reduce or eliminate aircraft radar, thermal, and electronic signatures. Operational by October 1980, the F-117 Nighthawk stealth fighter featured detection avoidance. Other Vietnam War technologies included precision-guided munitions and smart bombs. From April 1972 to January 1973, the United States used more than 4,000 early smart weapons to destroy bridges and enemy tanks. Laser-guided bombs, electro-optical guided missiles, and other precision technology changed the Air Force doctrine from its focus on strategic bombing to pinpoint bombing focused on destroying enemies' industrial web choke points, with economy of force and no collateral damage. To overcome numerically superior Warsaw Pact forces, the Air Force worked with the Army to update the Air-Land Battle Tactical Doctrine, published in Field Manual 100-5. The Air Force would make deep air attacks on an enemy army to isolate it on the battlefield. Conduct battlefield air interdiction to prevent enemy reinforcements from reaching the front. Disrupt the movement of secondary forces to the front and provide close air support to army ground forces. The Air Force produced the A-10 Thunderbolt II in the 1970s to support such missions. Operation Rice Bowl, the April 1980 attempt to rescue American hostages from the United States Embassy in Iran, ended in disaster at the Desert One refueling site 
inquiries led to the reorganization and revitalization of United States Special Operation Forces. Crisis support missions during the 1980s allowed the Air Force to test new ideas and technologies. During Operation Urgent Fury, October 1983, American forces rescued American students and restored order to Grenada. The Air Force primarily transported troops and cargo, but discovered problems with command control planning and inter-service and inter-service coordination during the operation. In April 1986, President Reagan mobilized England-based F-111s to strike Libya during Operation El Dorado Canyon. The counterterrorism operation exposed ongoing target identification and intelligence difficulties, punctuated by an accurate bombing. Finally, Operation Just Cause in 1989 tested air operations, this time in Panama. The Air Force primarily airlifted troops and supplies, but also debuted the F-117 Nighthawk stealth fighter with an AC-130 Spectre gunship, intimidating Panamanian troops loyal to dictator Manuel Noriega. President Kennedy's flexible response nuclear war doctrine of the early 1960s lacked the technology to match his vision of adapting to meet various Cold War crises. Advances in geodesy, cartography, missile and satellite guidance system integration circuits significantly improved missile accuracy. Technology improvements resulted in better targeting systems and smaller, more effective warheads. Because they were smaller and lighter, more warheads could be mounted to intercontinental ballistic missiles and submarine-launched ballistic missiles. In the early 1970s, the Department of Defense developed multiple independently targetable re-entry vehicles, allowing three or more warheads to be mounted on each intercontinental ballistic missile and submarine-launched ballistic missiles. The Air Force arsenal peaked at 1,054 Titan and Minuteman intercontinental ballistic missiles, but many carried three multiple independently targetable re-entry vehicles as opposed to earlier models that carried a single warhead. In spite of technological advances, planned targets continue to support the doctrine of mutually assured destruction or the capacity to eradicate an enemy society even after an attack on United States forces. Mutually assured destruction doctrine was based on the theory that superpower strategic nuclear forces could be sized and protected to survive a nuclear attack in order to retaliate with sufficient force to destroy the other side. Such retaliation destruction was deterrent insurance because no rational leader would consider starting a nuclear war knowing that the result would be nuclear destruction. For two decades, the Air Force developed more capable systems, such as the Missile Defense Alarm System, which was the first attempt at a space-based long-range missile attack detection and warning system. Missile Defense Alarm System 7, launched 9 May 1963, validated the concept of infrared sensing from a nearly circular 2,000-mile orbit. The need for accurate information on Soviet nuclear testing led to the development of a space-based system that could specifically detect nuclear explosions. In September 1959, Department of Defense directed the Advanced Research Projects Agency to develop the Vela Hotel Nuclear Detection Program a low-cost automated nuclear detection satellite constellation. The first pair of Vela satellites was launched from Cape Canaveral, 16 October 1963, and detected a nuclear blast the next day. Extensive United States and Soviet spending for weapons and related systems escalated into what appeared to be an unlimited strategic arms race. However, on 26 May 1972, 
the United States and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics signed the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, limiting each country to two anti-ballistic missile sites, one to protect the national capital and an intercontinental ballistic missile complex. The treaty served to reinforce the notion of the mutually assured destruction doctrine as the deterrent. The Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, which was signed at the same time, limited the number of nuclear weapons with the objective of obtaining a verified freeze on the numerical growth and the stabilizing characteristics of each side's strategic nuclear forces. Satellite advances significantly enhanced weather and communication support. The Air Force vision of weather satellites was realized with the development of a dedicated military weather satellite system, known initially as the Defense Satellite Applications Program. Early Defense Satellite Applications Program, military weather satellites were relatively unsophisticated, weighing about 430 pounds. The initial Defense Satellite Communication Program, launched 16 June 1966, was one of the earliest Air Force satellite communication systems. Another benefit of early satellites was improved in navigation. Although the Navy produced the first working satellite navigation system, Transit, an early Air Force navigation satellite program was designed to provide precise time and navigation information in three dimensions. Later, a joint Air Force and Navy program would result in what became known as the NAVSTAR Global Positioning System. Increased defense spending during the early 1980s resulted in more mature space and missile programs, most of which are still in service, to replace the systems developed in the 1960s and 70s. These included the Defense Support Program, the Defense Meteorological Satellite Program, the Defense Satellite Communication System, and the Global Positioning System. Concurrently, the Air Force developed the ground-based infrastructure to support, augment, and complement the space-based portions of the systems. Ground-based systems included the Ballistic Missile Early Warning System, Orbiting Space Object Surveillance using Baker Nun cameras, and the Air Force Satellite Control Network. In addition, the Air Force developed the launch support bases necessary to get satellites into space, one at Cape Canaveral, Florida, and the other at Vandenberg Air Force Base, California. The launch bases provided support not only for Department of Defense sponsored systems, but also for National Aeronautics and Space Agency, other United States government agencies, and commercial requirements. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the time had come to substantially recognize the way the service managed its space systems. Chief of Staff Air Force General Lou Allen appeared with Undersecretary of the Air Force Pete Aldridge. 21 June 1982, to announce the formation of Space Command, with activation slated for 1 September 1982. Air Force Space Command's responsibilities grew quickly over the ensuing decade, as it absorbed programs from Aerospace Defense Command, Air Force Systems Command, and Strategic Air Command. Eventually, command missions included missile warning, space surveillance, satellite control, space defense, space support to operational forces, and launch operations. The organizational changes that led to the establishment of Space Command reflected a growth in the use of space systems in support of worldwide joint operations. In a 23 March 1983 address, President Ronald Reagan proposed replacing the doctrine of mutually assured destruction with one of assured survival through implementation of the Strategic Defense Initiative. Strategic Defense Initiative would include a combination of defensive systems, 
such as space-based lasers, particle beams, railguns, and fast ground-launched missiles, among others, to intercept intercontinental ballistic missiles in the Earth's outer atmosphere and ballistic path in space. The end of the Cold War and collapse of the Soviet Union eliminated the justification for the level of research and development associated with the project. Although research continued at a much lower level, under the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization. Beginning in March 1985, Soviet Communist Party General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev initiated major changes in Soviet-American relations. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in December 1987 eliminated medium-range nuclear missiles, including United States Air Force ground-launched cruise missiles. Gorbachev's announcement in May 1988 that the Soviet Union after nine years of inconclusive combat, would withdraw from the war in Afghanistan, resulted in reduced Cold War tension. But it was only a hint of the rapid changes ahead. Relatively free and open Russian national elections in March 1989, followed by a coal miner strike in July, shook the foundations of the communist rule. East Germany opened the Berlin Wall in November, which led to German reunification in October 1990. The August 1991 coup against Gorbachev, led by Boris Yeltsin, resulted in the dissolution of the Soviet Union, replaced 25 December 1991 by the Commonwealth of Independent States. American nuclear strategy changed significantly in response to these changes. Under the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty 1, Signed by the United States and the Soviet Union in July 1991, the Air Force would reduce arms to 6,000 total warheads on deployed intercontinental ballistic missiles, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and heavy bombers. Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty 2, signed January 1993, would reduce total deployed warheads up to a range of 3,500 nautical miles. The resulting force structure determined during the nuclear posture review process, overseen by then-Secretary of Defense Les Aspin, would ultimately lead to the deployment of 500 single-warhead Miniman III intercontinental ballistic missiles, 66 B-52H, and 20 B-2 heavy bombers. 94 B-1 heavy bombers would be reoriented to a conventional role by 2003 and all peacemaker intercontinental ballistic missiles would be removed from active inventory and associated silo launchers eliminated. The Air Force, by presidential direction in September 1991, notified Strategic Air Command to remove heavy bombers from alert status. Strategic Air Command was subsequently inactivated in June 1992. United States Strategic Command, a unified combatant command, replaced Strategic Air Command and assumed control of all remaining Air Force and Navy Strategic Nuclear Forces. Desert Storm, the Air Campaign Against Iraq, 1990-1991 through 1991. On 2 August 1990, Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein ordered 100,000 troops to invade oil-rich Kuwait, claiming Kuwait as Iraq's 19th province. International condemnation followed and on 6 August the United Nations authorized an economic embargo. 
That same day, President George H.W. Bush announced Operation Desert Shield, the deployment of United States air and ground units to defend Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf states. Within 18 hours of the order, Air Force Military, Airlift Command C-141 and C-5 transports, delivered the Army 82nd Airborne Division and elements of the Air Force 1st Tactical Fighter Wing, whose 48 F-15Cs flew direct. Operation Desert Shield eclipsed the Berlin Airlift as the greatest air deployment in history. Military Airlift Command cargo planes delivered defensive forces 7 August through 8 November 1990, brought counter-offensive material 9 November through January 1991. The air bridge spanned more than 7,000 miles and included 20,500 strategic airlift missions. Desert Shield validated the C-5A Galaxy and C-141 Starlifter Large Capacity Heavy Lifter, which carried 534,000 passengers and 542,000 tons of cargo during the Gulf War. The Gulf War represents the first extensive broad-based employment of space support capabilities. Coalition forces employed more than 60 military satellites, as well as commercial and civil sector systems during the conflict. Defense Meteorological Satellite Program provided dedicated meteorological support in theater, which helped provide safe, highly effective combat power planning and application in a harsh environment characterized by sandstorms and oil fires. Satellite-based systems delivered more than 90% of all communications to and from the theater due to the sheer volume and the lack of ground-based infrastructure. At the height of the conflict, 700,000 phone calls and 152,000 messages per day flowed over satellite links. At 0100, 17 January 1991, three Air Force Special Operations MH-53J PAVE low helicopters led nine Army Apaches on the first strike mission of Operation Desert Storm. Within hours, the world watched live television coverage of Iraqi skies filled with anti-aircraft artillery fire. F-117A Nighthawks struck heavily defended targets, with unprecedented precision. Under the command of Lieutenant General Charles A. Horner, United States Central Command Air Forces, 2,700 aircraft from 14 countries and services implemented the Master Attack Plan. The coalition effort overwhelmed the Iraqi air defense system with speed, surprise, precision, and mass. A flight of seven B-52Gs flew non-stop from Barksdale Air Force Base, Louisiana, to strike Iraqi power stations and communications facilities with air-launched cruise missiles. At 35 hours round trip, the 14,000-mile raid was the longest combat mission up to that time and proof of America's global reach. The first week of Desert Storm focused on achieving air supremacy, and destroying the enemy's command and control system. Captain John K. J. B. Kelk, flying an F-15C, scored the first air-to-air -air kill, downing an Iraqi MiG-29. 
All total, coalition aircraft shot down 41 Iraqi aircraft. With Captain Thomas N. Vegas Dietz and First Lieutenant Robert W. Giggs Heheman each credited with three kills. Additionally, Allied Air Forces destroyed 375 enemy aircraft and 594 hardened bunkers. Faced with coalition air dominance, 148 Iraqi aircraft fled to neighboring Iran. The air campaign then prepared the battlefield by isolating Iraqi ground units, interdicting supplies, and reducing enemy combat power. A-10 Thunderbolt II Warthogs and F-15Es introduced a new term, tank planking, as they destroyed the enemy's armored forces. F-111F Aardvarks dropped 4,600 of the 8,000 precision guided munitions. EF-111A electronic warfare aircraft provided tactical jamming while combined RC-135 rivet joint E-8 Joint Surveillance Target Attack Radar System, Joint Stars, and E-3 Airborne Warning and Control System aircraft provided intelligence and command and control. Perhaps the most spectacular element, B-52s, shattered Iraqi air morale with massive bomb drops. When one Iraqi commander asserted that he surrendered because of B-52 strikes, his interrogator pointed out that his position had never been attacked by the B-52. Quote, That is true, but I saw one that had been attacked, said the Iraqi. Not all aspects of the air campaign were successful. Early in the campaign, Iraq launched modified Soviet Scud missiles against Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Persian Gulf states. On 18 January 1991, United States Air Force's A-10s, F-16s and F-15Es with low-altitude navigation and targeting infrared for night pods commenced the Great Scud Hunt. Despite 2,767 sorties, 22% of the strategic air phase, air patrols did not destroy a significant number of the missiles. Iraqi camouflage, decoys, and employment tactics frustrated the effort. The enemy launched 88 scuds, including one that struck a United States Army Reserve unit at Dharan, killing 28 soldiers and wounding 98. The anti-Scud effort did limit Scud launches after the first two weeks of fighting and reduce the political impact of the weapon. The Desert Storm air campaign demonstrated air power's impact on a conventional battlefield. Air Force space assets provided precision positioning and navigation to joint and coalition forces with the combat debut of the global positioning system. Space forces also provided the coalition and allies with advanced Iraqi Scud launch warnings. Defense Support Program 
gave timely warning of the launch of Iraqi Scud missiles to the United States forces in theater and allowed Patriot batteries in Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait sufficient time to engage the incoming Iraqi intermediate-range ballistic missiles. Space Force capabilities influenced Israel to remain neutral, thereby preserving the integrity of the Allied coalition. Over the course of the 44-day air campaign, the coalition flew 118,661 sorties, of which the Air Force flew 60%. The 1991 Persian Gulf War brought military space operations to the joint community. The Gulf War was the first conflict to highlight the force enhancement capabilities of space-based communications, intelligence, navigation, missile warning, and weather satellites. Desert Storm also demonstrated the impact of precision-guided munitions on modern war. Although precision-guided munitions accounted for only 8% of the 88,500 tons of bombs dropped, they were responsible for 80% of the destroyed targets. While coalition ground forces delivered General Schwarzkopf's famous Hail Mary outflanking maneuver that applied the final blow to the Iraqi military forces, air power set the stage for victory. As the Gulf War Air Power Survey stated, it was not the number of Iraqi tanks or artillery pieces destroyed or the number of Iraqi soldiers killed that mattered. It was the effectiveness of the air campaign in breaking apart the organizational structure and cohesion of enemy military forces and in reaching the mind of the Iraqi soldier that counted. Operations provide relief, impressive lift, and restore hope. Somalia, 1992-1994 Civil unrest in the wake of a two-year civil war contributed to a famine in Somalia that killed up to 350,000 people in 1992. As many as 800,000 refugees fled the stricken country. The United Nations-led relief effort began in July 1992. To relieve the suffering of refugees near the Kenya-Somalia border and then Somalia itself, the United States initiated Operation Provide Relief in August 1992. By December, the United States airlifted 38 million pounds of food into the region, sometimes under the hail of small arms fire. Continued civil war and clan fighting within Somalia, however, prevented much of the relief supplies from getting into the hands of those who desperately needed them. First, the United Nations, then the United States, attempted to alleviate the problem. In September, the United States initiated Operation Impressive Lift to airlift hundreds of Pakistani soldiers under the United Nations banner to Somalia. Despite the increased security from the United Nations forces, the problem continues. On 4 December, President George Bush authorized Operation Restore Hope to establish order in the country so that food could reach those in need. Marines landed and assumed control of the airport, allowing flights in and out of Mogadishu, Somalia. To resume, 
C5 galaxies, C141 starlifters, C130 Hercules, and even KC-10 tankers rushed supplies into the country. Further, the Operation Restore Hope airlift brought 32,000 United States troops into Somalia. In March 1993, the United Nations once again assumed control of the mission, and Operation Restore Hope officially ended 4 May 1993. Fewer than 5,000 of the 25,000 United States troops originally deployed remained in Somalia. Unfortunately, factional fighting within the country caused the relief effort to unravel yet again. On 3 October 1993, United States Special Forces troops, in an effort to capture members of one clan, lost 18 personnel and suffered 84 wounded. In the late afternoon of 3 October 1993, Technical Sergeant Timothy A. Wilkinson, a pararescue man with the 24th Special Tactics Squadron, responded with his crew to the downing of a United States UH-60 helicopter in the streets of Mogadishu, Somalia. Wilkinson repeatedly exposed himself to intense enemy small arms fire while extracting the wounded and dead crew members from the crashed helicopter. Despite his own wounds, he provided life-saving medical treatment to the wounded crew members. With the helicopter crew taken care of, he turned to aid the casualties of a ranger's security element engaged in an intense firefight across an open four-way intersection from his position, where he began immediate medical treatment. His decisive actions, personal courage, and bravery under heavy enemy fire were integral to the success of all casualty treatment and evacuation efforts conducted in the intense 18-hour combat engagement. Wilkinson was awarded the Air Force Cross for his actions. The losses sustained on 3 and 4 October prompted Operation Restore Hope II, the airlifting of 1,700 United States troops and 3,100 tons of cargo into Mogadishu between 5 and 13 October 1993. The troops and equipment were tasked with only stabilizing the situation. President Clinton refused to commit the United States to nation-building and promised to remove United States forces by March 1994. Operation Restore Hope II officially ended 25 March 1994, when the last C-5-carrying United States troops departed Mogadishu. While Operation Restore Hope II allowed United States forces to get out of the country without further casualties, anarchy ruled in Somalia, and a threat of famine remained. Operation Allied Force The post-Cold War breakup of Yugoslavia proved to be NATO's greatest challenge of the 1990s. Militant Serbian nationalism and the policy of ethnic cleansing promoted by Yugoslavian President Slobodan Milosevic created a crisis in Kosovo in 1999. Meanwhile, Albanian separatists in the Kosovo Liberation Army fanned the flames of violence. When diplomacy failed, NATO worried about the possibility of a genocidal civil war and destabilization throughout the Balkans. As NATO debated intervention, President Milosevic 
unleashed a ruthless offensive designed to crush the Kosovo Liberation Army and drive ethnic Albanians out of Kosovo. Faced with a massive humanitarian crisis, NATO turned to air power. After Desert Storm in early 1992, Chief of Staff Air Force General Merrick McPeak introduced a revamped Air Force mission, defend the United States through control and exploitation of air and space. Resultant organizational changes permitted the Air Force to attain an unprecedented level of integration between air and space capabilities by the time the air war over Serbia commenced in 1999. During air war over Serbia, Air Force Space Command deployed nearly 150 space professionals to nine locations in theater. During the conflict, multi-source tactical systems slash combat track 1 modifications to 5B-52s and 2B-1s allowed near real-time information to flow to the cockpits. The space-enabled information included threats, target updates, imagery, and secure communications with the Wing Operations Center. Global Positioning System satellites provided terminal guidance data for joint direct attack munitions, conventional air-launched cruise missiles, and Tomahawk land attack missile deliveries. This conflict was the first operational employment of joint direct attack munitions, demonstrating precision adverse weather delivery of multiple weapons against multiple aim points on a single pass. Optimistic policymakers looked to NATO's successful two-week operation Deliberate force in 1995 that brought relative peace to Bosnia. On 24 March 1999, President Bill Clinton commenced Operation Allied Force, announcing three objectives demonstrate NATO's opposition to aggression, deter Milosevic from escalating attacks on civilians, and damage Serbia's capability to wage war against Kosovo. Milosevic and Serbian forces presented United States and NATO forces with an opponent with a capacity for skilled propaganda and utter ruthlessness. The ensuing 78-day battle was directed against both the Serbian military and Milosevic's propaganda efforts. From 24 March to 9 June 1999, NATO air forces walked a political tightrope. In over 38,000 sorties, 13 of NATO's 19 nations attempted to pressure Milosevic, destroy Serbian-fielded forces engaged in Kosovo, and maintain popular support for intervention. Initially, 214 striked aircraft followed a limited air campaign against approximately 50 targets. The B-52 Spirit stealth bomber flew its first combat missions from Whiteman Air Force Base, Missouri, delivering 650 joint direct attack munitions in 49 30-hour sorties. On 27 March 1999, Serb air defenses shot down an Air Force F-117, but combat search and rescue personnel recovered the pilot. After weeks of caution and frustration, NATO expanded the scale of the air campaign, 563 United States Air Force aircraft and 13,850 American airmen deployed to 24 locations. 
By June 1999, NATO air power accomplished its objectives. Although complex political constraints, abysmal flying weather, and a Serbian-manufactured refugee crisis hampered progress. Despite a concerted effort to avoid civilian casualties, at least 20 major incidents occurred, including the 7 May 1999 accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy. The 1999 air campaign against Serbia reinforced historical lessons on employing air and space power. Despite limitations, air and space forces proved precise, effective, and rapid. In many ways, a limited air campaign represented the only means available to coerce an implacable foe. Assessments of Operation Allied Force concluded that air and ground commanders must agree on the enemy's centers of gravity, and micromanaging the targeting process limits military effectiveness. Operations Noble Eagle, Enduring Freedom, and Iraqi Freedom, Global War on Terrorism. On 11 September 2001, 19 Islamic extremist al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four airlines and flew them into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the remote field in Pennsylvania, killing about 3,000 people. In response, President George W. Bush declared a global war on terrorism. Operation Noble Eagle immediately focused on protecting the United States homeland from both internal and external air attacks of the nature used on September 11th. United States Air Force fighter, tanker, and surveillance air assets provided 24-hour intercepts response coverage for virtually the entire United States in the form of ground alert and airborne combat air patrols over designated locations. Operation Enduring Freedom focused on forming and acting with an international coalition, which included forces from the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, the Czech Republic, Denmark, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Jordan, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Pakistan, Poland, Russia, Spain, Turkey, and other nations to remove Afghanistan's Taliban government. The Taliban sponsored al-Qaeda terrorism and provided a safe haven for Osama bin Laden, its leader. On 7 October 2001, 15 Air Force bombers, 25 Navy carrier strike aircraft, and 50 United States and British Sea-launched Tomahawk cruise missiles launched the first wave of Operation Enduring Freedom military operations. In the opening days of the campaign, joint air power destroyed Taliban air defenses, command centers, and other fixed targets and protected humanitarian relief missions to the Afghan people. In contrast to Desert Storm, an allied force, Taliban and Al-Qaeda forces presented few fixed targets suitable for air attack. Instead, Air Force B-52 bombers carrying Global Positioning System, guided Joint Direct Attack munitions, flew to engagement zones where ground-based forces directed attacks. Global positioning system guided munitions were employed with great accuracy, enabling air planners to reduce the number of air sorties required to destroy a particular objective. Combat operations in Afghanistan began with small groups of elite American military forces 
deployed to support anti-Taliban Afghani fighters. A number of the deployed troops carried 2.75-pound precision lightweight global positioning system receivers and satellite-based communication devices. Air Force combat controllers were among the 300 or so Army, Navy, and Air Force Special Operations personnel augmenting the Afghan Northern Alliance. On 13 November 2001, the Afghan capital, Kabul, fell to coalition forces. One relatively small but quite significant operation took place on 4 March 2002. The Pentagon called it Operation Anaconda, and the press referred to it as the Battle at Shah-e-Kot Mountain, but the men who fought there called it the Battle of Roberts Ridge. In the early morning hours, on a mountaintop called Takur Gar in southeastern Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda soldiers fired on an MH-47E helicopter, causing a Navy SEAL to fall to the ground, and a chain of events ensued culminating in one of the most intense small unit firefights of the war against terrorism. The death of all of the Al-Qaeda terrorists defending the mountaintop, and the death of seven United States servicemen. Despite these losses, United States forces involved in this fight distinguished themselves by conspicuous bravery. Their countless acts of heroism demonstrated the best of America's special operations forces as Air Force, Army, and Navy special operators fought side by side to save one of their own and each other, and in the process secured the mountaintop and inflicted a serious loss on Al-Qaeda. On 10 January 2003, Secretary of the Air Force posthumously awarded the Air Force Cross to Technical Sergeant John A. Chapman. It was only the third time since the end of the Vietnam conflict that an enlisted airman received the Air Force Cross and the second time that it went to one of the enlisted airmen who died in what became a 17-hour ordeal on top of Takur Gar Mountain in Afghanistan. Chapman's helicopter came under enemy fire, causing a Navy SEAL to fall out of an MH-47 helicopter during an insertion under fire. The helicopter landed 4.5 miles away from where the SEAL was killed. Once on the ground, Chapman provided directions to another helicopter to pick them up. After being rescued, Chapman and the team volunteered to rescue their mission team member from the enemy stronghold. After landing, Chapman killed two enemy soldiers and, without regard for his own life, kept advancing toward a dug-in machine gun nest. The team came under fire from three directions. Chapman exchanged fire from minimum personal cover and succumbed to multiple wounds. His engagement and destruction of the first enemy position and advancement to the second enabled his team to move to cover and break enemy contact. He is credited with saving the lives of the entire rescue team. Afghanistan's rugged terrain, complex political relationships, and distance from operating bases challenged coalition forces. Navy aircraft flew 700 miles one way from carriers, 
and Air Force bombers ventured 2,500 miles one way from Diego Garcia. Air Force KC-135 tankers, C-17, and C-130 airlifters, Red Horse civil engineer teams, space-based global positioning system and intelligence-gathering satellites, and other support functions proved to be unsung heroes of the campaign. Their effectiveness reduced combat troop casualties. In the first 18 months, the Air Force flew more than 85,000 sorties, 75% of the total effort, dropped 30,750 munitions, delivered 487,000 tons of cargo, and provided 3,025 intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions. Even after the defeat of the Taliban, operations in Afghanistan remained hazardous, as United States and coalition forces there faced extended counterinsurgency operations. On 19 March 2003, a coalition of American and Allied forces entered Iraq to end the regime of Saddam Hussein and to free the Iraqi people, kicking off Operation Iraqi Freedom. Much like the Gulf War, Operation Iraqi Freedom came as no surprise to anyone besides Saddam Hussein. On 17 March 2003, President George W. Bush announced a 48-hour ultimatum for Saddam and his sons to leave Iraq or face conflict. Saddam rejected President Bush's ultimatum to flee, and on 20 March a salvo of missiles and laser-guided bombs hit targets where coalition forces believed Saddam and his sons and other leaders gathered. Thus, the war began. More than 300,000 troops were deployed to the Gulf region to form a multinational coalition. Combat operations took longer than the 24-hour war of Operation Desert Storm. Operation Iraqi Freedom officially began on 20 March 2003, and the primary combat phase ended on 1 May 2003. The Pentagon unleashed airstrikes so devastating they would leave Saddam's soldiers unable or unwilling to fight. Between 300 and 400 cruise missiles were fired at targets, more than the number launched during the entire First Gulf War. On the second day, the plan called for launching another 300 to 400 missiles. The battle plan was based on a concept developed at the National Defense University called Shock and Awe, it focused on the psychological destruction of the enemy's will to fight, rather than the physical destruction of the opposing military force. The concept relies on a large number of precision-guided weapons hitting the enemy simultaneously, much like a nuclear weapon strike that takes minutes instead of days or weeks to work. Heavy sandstorms slowed the coalition advance, but soldiers reached within 50 miles of Baghdad by 24 March. Missile attacks hit military facilities in Baghdad on 30 March, and by 2 April, the Baghdad and Medina divisions of Iraq's Republican Guard were defeated. The United States soldiers seized bridges over the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and then advanced within 25 miles of Baghdad. The next day, United States Army units, along with Air Force Special Tactics Combat Controllers, pararescuemen, 
and combat weathermen attacked Saddam International Airport, ten miles southwest of the capital. Two days later, American armored vehicles drove through Baghdad after smashing through Republican Guard units. On 7 April, United States tanks rumbled through downtown Baghdad, and a B-1B bomber attack hit buildings sought to hold Saddam and other leaders. On 8 April 2003, Staff Sergeant Scott Sather, a combat controller, became the first airman killed in Operation Iraqi Freedom. The 29-year-old Michigan native earned seven medals, including the Bronze Star, during his Air Force career. The citation accompanying Sather's Bronze Star Medal with Valor reads, quote, He led his reconnaissance task force on combat operations into Iraq on the first day of the ground war, breaching enemy fortifications during the Iraqi border crossing. During the next several days, Sergeant Sather covered countless miles conducting specialized reconnaissance in the southwestern Iraqi desert supporting classified missions. With only minimal sleep, he assumed a leadership role in the reconnaissance of an enemy airfield, opening up the first of five airheads, used by a joint task force to conduct critical resupply of fielded troops, and provide attack helicopter rearming facilities, enabling deep battlefield offensive operations. Sergeant Sather was then employed to an area of heavy enemy concentration tasks to provide critical reconnaissance and intelligence on enemy movement supporting direct action missions against enemy forces. Exposed to direct enemy fire on numerous occasions, he continued to provide vital information to higher headquarters in direct support of ongoing combat operations. His magnificent skills in the control of close air support aircraft and keen leadership under great pressure were instrumental in the overwhelming success of these dangerous missions. Sergeant Sather's phenomenal leadership and bravery on the battlefield throughout his deployment were instrumental in the resounding successes of the numerous combat missions, performing a significant role in the success of the war and complete overthrow of the Iraqi regime. The withdrawal of American military forces from Iraq had been a contentious issue within the United States since the beginning of the Iraq War. As the war progressed from its initial 2003 invasion phase to a multi-year occupation, United States public opinion turned in favor of troop withdrawal. In late April 2007, the United States Congress passed a supplementary spending bill for Iraq that set a deadline, but President Bush vetoed this bill. Soon afterwards, all United States forces were mandated to withdraw from Iraqi territory by 31 December 2011, under the terms of a bilateral agreement signed in 2008 by President Bush. As the deadline for withdrawal drew nearer, the mission of United States forces in Iraq continued to move away from combat, and 1 September 2010 marked the transition from Operation Iraqi Freedom to Operation New Dawn, signifying a formal end to United States military combat operations. The transition to a supporting role and stability operations was made possible by 
increased capability of Iraqi security forces and their improved ability to combat terrorists and provide security for the Iraqi people. As part of Operation New Dawn, United States forces had three primary missions, advising, assisting, and training the Iraqi security forces, conducting partnered counter-terrorism operations, and providing support to provincial reconstruction teams and civilian partners as they helped build Iraqi's civil capacity. The United States troop withdrawal from Iraq was completed 18 December 2011, early Sunday morning. On 20 March 2011, a collection of aircraft launched in support of Operation Odyssey Dawn to reinforce United Nations Security Council Resolution 1973, centered on protecting Libyan citizens from further harm from Libyan leader Mohammed Gaddafi's regime. Following the initial launch of Tomahawk missiles, three United States aircraft led strikes on a variety of strategic targets over Libya. United States fighter aircraft created airspace where no enemy forces could advance on Libyan opposition troops. As already stated, the war in Afghanistan had begun in 2001 with the stated goal of dismantling the Al-Qaeda terrorist organization and ending its use of Afghanistan as a base. The United States also said that it would remove the Taliban regime from power and create a viable democratic state. More than a decade into the war, NATO forces continued to battle a widespread Taliban insurgency and the war expanded into the tribal areas of neighboring Pakistan. On 29 May 2012, the leaders of the NATO member countries signed off on President Barack Obama's exit strategy from Afghanistan that called for an end to combat operations in 2013, and the withdrawal of a United States-led international military force by the end of 2014. On 9 June 2012, French President François Hollande announced his plan to withdraw combat forces by year's end. In December of that year, France pulled its last troops engaged directly in combat out of Afghanistan. The remaining French troops, about 1,500, remained for approximately six months removing equipment and helping to train Afghan forces. Also on 2 September 2012, United States Special Operation Forces temporarily suspended training of some 1,000 Afghan local police recruits while they double-checked the background of the current police force, following a rise in insider attacks against NATO troops by Afghan forces. On September 20, 2012, the surge of United States forces in Afghanistan ended and the last several hundred surge troops left the country. On 18 June 2013, Afghan National Security Forces formally took over combat operations. Canada's military mission in Afghanistan ended on 12 March 2014 and on 27 May, President Obama announced that the United States combat mission in Afghanistan would end in December. For most United Nations and NATO forces, the war in Afghanistan was over by the end of 2014. At NATO's International Security Assistance Force headquarters in Kabul, a ceremony marked the end of International Security Assistance Force's mission and the transition to the NATO-led Resolute Support. 
the new NATO presence would be more than 12,500 troops to focus on Afghan security forces stability, and United States personnel would number almost 11,000, including approximately 2,500 airmen in January 2015. The United States Operation Enduring Freedom would be replaced by Operation Freedom Sentinel, the name of the United States portion of NATO's resolute support. Airmen would continue to work at standing up the Afghan Air Force, and their mission would continue until the Afghan Air Force becomes fully independent. In the latter part of 2014, a new and ominous threat emerged that resulted in United States airmen again involved in operations in the skies over Iraq. The enemy, calling themselves the Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, was an extremist Sunni jihadist organization. Aided by a number of worldwide recruits and sympathizers, Islamic State of Iraq and Levant gained control of territory in Syria and northern Iraq, including the cities of Mosul and Fallujah exceeding the size of Great Britain, leaving savage atrocities in their wake, including mass murders and ruthless execution of innocent civilians. Their brutality resulted in nearly universal condemnation. Even Al-Qaeda repudiated them, and President Obama authorized United States forces, in cooperation with partner nations, to conduct carefully targeted airstrikes over Syria and Iraq, beginning in August with the aim of degrading and defeating Islamic State of Iraq and Levant. This operation, under the name of Inherent Resolve, was still ongoing at the end of 2014. Historical Perspective Conclusion From Kitty Hawk to Afghanistan, the record of air and space power emphasizes powerful themes. The interplay of doctrine, technology, tactics, and strategy must be sustained by training, logistics, supply, and support infrastructure. Although history may not provide hard and fast lessons, it offers inspiration, insight, and examples to spur your thinking. Today's airmen draw from a proud heritage of sacrifice, valor, and success. Just as our predecessors triumphed over the challenges at St. Mihail, Schweinfurt, and Meg Alley, you will face new challenges with courage, skill, innovation, and perseverance. From the skies over the Rio Grande to those over Iraq and Afghanistan nearly 100 years later, air power has evolved from an ineffective oddity to the dominant form of military might in the world. Its applications and effectiveness have increased with each succeeding conflict. In World War I, air power played a minor role. In Kosovo, it played the only role. In addition to the air combat role, airmen have bravely and successfully carried out a large number of humanitarian missions, demonstrating the ability to save lives and alleviate suffering in the face of both natural and man-made disasters. This chapter has looked at the development of air power through the nation's many conflicts and contingencies, spotlighting just a few of the many contributions of enlisted personnel.